If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, we'll be picking up in verse 13 this week and reading on to the very end of this letter that we've been reading and, and working through all fall so far. And, and it's, it's good to be back with you all this week. Uh, Caitlin and I enjoyed some time away last week, getting to rest and connect with each other as we celebrated our anniversary. And I'm grateful to Jerry for jumping in last week and sticking with First John. I got to listen to a recording of the sermon after we got back, and I was greatly blessed by that. that, that I loved that image of, of Grandpa John inviting us up onto his lap to show us this picture book of eternal life in Christ. I, I love that. It's very much what this letter of First John has been like, right? It, it is like this painting full of pictures, or like a symphony filled with these recurring motifs and refrains. And today, we are arriving at the symphony's final movement. It's sort of a great conclusion as John brings his letter to a close. And in these final verses, John seems to do a bit of a review uh, after all that he's written, everything that, that we've read through the past several weeks, it, it, he just kind of says, all right, here's what we know. Here's what we know. Here's what I want you to be confident of. And like John does, he repeats himself multiple times again and again with this phrase, we know. We know this. We know. And so listen for that as we read together. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the boldness we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will— he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of him. If you see your brother or sister committing sin, or committing uh, what is not a mortal sin, you will ask, and God will give life to such a one. To those whose sin is not mortal. There is sin that is mortal. I do not say that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that is not mortal. We know that those who are born of God do not sin, but the one who was born of God protects them, and the evil one does not touch them. We know that we are God's children. And that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the gift of this letter that you have spoken to us through John. We thank you that you have called us your children and that you are with us. God, I pray that as we reflect on the words of your scripture today, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I was reflecting on this final passage from 1 John, I found myself thinking about one of my favorite classes that I had in grad school. Most of you know that I went to a school called the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. And, and so I studied the Bible and history and theology, but also learned about neuroscience, relationships, and psychology as well. And one of the concepts that I learned about in grad school, which I found to be incredibly helpful and insightful, is something called attachment theory. Attachment theory. Now, attachment is the way that psychologists refer to emotional connection in relationships. Uh, emotional connection in relationships. Dr. Susan Johnson is a psychologist up in Canada who specializes in attachment theory. She's written a number of books about this. One incredible book uh, about marriage that I've actually worked with uh, some couples with through that. It's fantastic. But she writes this, one of the most primary human needs is to have a secure emotional connection and attachment with those who are closest to us. One of the most primary human needs is to have a secure emotional connection and attachment with those who are closest to us. And so she goes on to explain that secure attachment offers a safe haven and a secure base through emotional accessibility and responsiveness. All right, someone who is emotionally accessible and, and responsive to us. She says that the safe haven provides a buffer against the effects of stress and uncertainty and an optimal context for the continuing development of the personality. And this secure base provides a place from which individuals can explore their universe and reflect on themselves their own behavior, and their own mental states. And so this attachment relationship plays a great role in personal development and in personal growth, which is why most attachment theory has focused in on the relationship between children and their caregivers. Children and parents is sort of where this attachment theory originates. And the idea is this. If relationship with a parent is safe and secure, then a child will form a secure attachment that provides both the stability and also the freedom that is needed to grow in a healthy way. Both stability and freedom. 
However, if a parent is unsafe, maybe abusive or dismissive, or if a parent is insecure, aloof or inconsistent, unavailable, well, then the child is very likely to form an insecure attachment that is marked by either anxiety or avoidance or both. These attachments that we form early on in life shape and form our styles of relating, the way that we relate to other people and, and, and affect that even on into adulthood. And so attachment theory would say that this is why some of us are often anxiously preoccupied with everyone else, what they think of us, uh, what's going on. We try to please them. Uh, we try to, you know, just do everything we can to, to do that. While there are others who, instead of being preoccupied with, tend to avoid other people entirely. But, you know, kind of, oh, I don't care what they think of me, or kind of, you know, shrinking back into the corner, trying to be invisible, so on and so forth. Right? This is what attachment theory teaches us about why we might act that way. But it is always a wonderful thing when you come into contact with someone who has that sort of secure attachment because they're stable, they're present, they're safe and secure, neither too big nor too small, but just themselves. So attachment theory teaches that this kind of presence, secure presence, has its origins in a secure relationship with a safe caregiver, a good parent. Now, why am I thinking of all of this as I read these last few verses of 1 John? Well, all throughout this letter, John has been communicating this constant theme to us, and we've been saying it from the very beginning. And it's this, who God is determines who we are. Who God is determines who we are. John constantly refers to his audience as beloved and little children, while also emphasizing that God is love. God is a good father. And so as I read this final review that John offers us, all that we know, right, over and over again, it's as if he is saying, here's why we can have a secure attachment with our Heavenly Father. Here's why we can have a secure attachment with him. He is safe and secure. He is accessible and responsive to us. And from this secure attachment, we can become people who are not anxious or avoidant, but secure and able to love one another which is what he has said over and over and over again throughout the letter. And so what are the things in this final passage that John says we know? 
And how do they connect with these ideas that secure attachment offers a safe haven and a secure base through accessibility and responsiveness? Here's, here's the summary for today. In prayer, God is accessible and responsive. In protection, God is a safe haven and a secure base. And in the person of Jesus, God truly shows himself to us. In prayer, God is accessible and responsive. In protection, God is safe and secure. And in the person of Jesus, God shows himself to us. And so let's dig into this. The very first we know in the passage refers to prayer. This is verses 14 and 15. He writes, this is the boldness we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of him. So here's the first we know. We know that God hears us. We know that God hears us. In prayer, God is accessible and responsive. Accessible and responsive. Prayer is not a place where we have to perform or say all the right words or do all the right stuff. Instead, prayer is a place where we honestly pour forth the contents of our hearts and our souls. And God hears us. God hears us. This is one of the reasons why we often come back to reading the Psalms together in our worship. Because the Psalms teach us how to pray. No matter how we're feeling, no matter what we're facing, the Psalms teach us how to pray. Do you feel moved to worship? Well, then proclaim, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you feel grateful? Well, then pray, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. Do you feel alone? Well, then ask, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Do you feel afraid? Well, then say, in the Lord, I take refuge. And that's just Psalms 8 to 11, right? I, the Psalms are filled with prayer after prayer. They show us that prayer is a place to bring our whole selves. Whether joy or grief, whether life with God is feeling warm and fuzzy or cold and distant, prayer is a place to speak our minds and our hearts to God. And John says, we know that he hears us. 
we know that he hears us. And John also tells us that prayer is not only a place to bring ourselves, but also to bring others. In verse 16, he goes on to say, If you see your brother or sister committing what is not a mortal sin, you will ask, and God will give life to such a one. So we do not only pour out our hearts to God, but we also present and intercede for others who are wrestling with sin and in need of life. And God will give life to them. Now, we can easily get sidetracked by this phrase, mortal sin, or sin that leads to death, or deadly sin, uh, however your translation does that. And plenty of folks have gotten wrapped around the axle, to use one of Peter's favorite phrases, about what mortal sin is, right? Uh, whether or not I'm committing a mortal sin, whether or not this sin can be forgiven or not, right? And has caused all kinds of, of controversy and anxiety, But to do so is to actually miss the entire point of what John is saying in this passage. One of the best descriptions that I came across as I was reading this week is from the 6th century. A commentator named, let me see if I can do this, it's, it's Greek, it's Oecumenius is his name. He's a writer from the, from the 6th century, Oecumenius, and he wrote this regarding this passage. Only those sins which are not repented of lead to death. Only those sins which are not repented of lead to death. But whoever has given themselves over to Christ cannot commit mortal sin. So John's comments about mortal sin are not about kinds of sins, but rather kinds of people. Is this someone who has given themselves to Jesus or not? Or to go back to the very beginning of 1 John, is this someone who is walking in the light or not? You know, is this someone who acknowledges and confesses their sin or someone who claims to be without sin? Do you remember that from chapter 1? This is what John is getting at. This is what he's referring to in this. And, and he encourages us to pray for our brothers and sisters when they wrestle with sin. Because we know that God hears us and God will give life to them. And so in prayer, God is accessible. And God is responsive to us. He is a good father with whom we can form a secure attachment, to use that language. Now, the next couple of we knows are in verses 18 and 19, which say, We know that those who are born of God do not sin or continue in sinning, is maybe a better way of, of translating that. But the one who was born of God 
protects them. And the evil one does not touch them. We know that we are God's children and that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And so we know that God protects his children and that we are his children. So in protection, God is a safe haven and a secure base. God is the safe place we can always run to in times of trouble. God is the one who will always be there for you, no matter what. He is a safe haven and a secure base. Now that term base is one that makes its way into every child's vocabulary at some point, right? One of the earliest games that you learn how to play is tag. Someone is it, and the others, you know, have to chase, and they chase one another until they can tag the other person. However, very quickly in this game, what emerges? Base, right? You have to get to the base, and if you're touching the base, then you're safe from the chase, right? It's a place where you can run to and cling on, and you can rest. You're not in this game of chasing any longer. That's what it means for God to be a secure base. Someone we can cling to in the midst of the chaos of life and find rest. A place of protection. And God protects us, his children. Just think of the ways that we have seen this throughout 1 John. Right? First John, at the very beginning in chapter 1, we see God protecting us from sin by cleansing us with his blood. And then we see God protecting us from deception of false prophets by giving us the anointing of his Holy Spirit who speaks truth to us. And then here, towards the end in this chapter, we see God protecting us even from death by giving us eternal life. The life of the ages, as Jerry pointed out last week. And so John says, we know that we are God's children, and we know that he protects us. But coupled with this knowledge of protection, John also points out the knowledge of this perverse power at work in the world, right? And in the very same breath, he says, we know that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And this is something that we also know. As followers of Christ, we are not surprised whenever things go badly wrong in this world. We are not surprised at the presence of sickness or pain. We are not surprised to find bitterness and division in the world. We are not surprised when we see and experience the ways in which this good world has been marred by sin. But we are also not surprised when we see signs of life 
and glory and redemption. Because we know that God protects. See, this is what we pray together each week when we pray, deliver us from evil. And John seems to be telling us here that God indeed has answered that prayer, that God protects us. You see, we, we need not be surprised when we encounter all manner of evil in this world, but we can trust this. We know that God protects us. So in prayer, God is accessible and responsive to us. And in protection, God is this safe haven and a secure base. And so again, over and over again, John is telling us, God is a good father. We can have this secure attachment with him. There is not need for anxiety. There is not need for avoidance. But if we're honest, it doesn't always feel like God is present in prayer. And we certainly don't always feel protected, especially whenever we're struggling with sin and facing all kinds of pain. And that's where this final, we know, comes in. In verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. You see, even when we do not feel the presence of God in prayer, even when we're not sure if God is protecting us, as it says here, of this we can be sure. As we look to Jesus, this is the proof that God is with us. Jesus is the one who came to dwell among us. Jesus is the one who is the answer to our prayer. Jesus is the one who does protect us from sin and from death. Jesus is the ultimate picture of who God is. This is the true God and the eternal life. Come to live and dwell among us. Jesus is the one who shows us God's full heart. And Jesus was the most secure person to have ever lived. He was not anxious in any situation. He was not afraid. He did not have to puff himself up or prove himself to anyone. Neither was Jesus avoidant. He didn't, you know, back away into the corner, try to hide or, or make less of anything. He was simply himself, the perfect 
person. And he is the one who taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. He, he is the one who came with this continual message that God is a good Father who can be known and loved and trusted. God is available. The kingdom of God has come near. God is responsive. He hears your prayers. God is good. He is a safe and a secure base. Jesus shows us what it looks like to have this good, trusting, secure attachment to God. Many of us may not have experienced that, perhaps with our own earthly fathers, and we may still be working through that with our heavenly father. But one of my favorite things that I learned about attachment theory is that even when there's all kinds of relational rupture, there is the possibility of repair. That insecure attachments can have very real and lasting effects on our lives as we cope through anxiety and avoidance. But that's not the end of our story. It is always possible to experience security. It's always possible to move toward a place of healing and peace and to be healed from trauma, from pain, from fear. This is what Jesus came to show us. What it is like for that rupture to be repaired and to live in peace. From that secure base of who God is, that's what allows us then to freely love one another. We don't love one another in order to prove anything, right? That's just another version of anxiety. We love one another because we are secure in who we are and because we are living out of a place of peace and confidence. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And this is ultimately what eternal life is all about. In John 17, Jesus summarizes really this whole passage that we've just read by saying this. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is simply knowing God through the Son, Jesus Christ. It's not some life that we're waiting around for someday. Eternal life is knowing God. And that is something that we will be able to do forever and ever. There will never, we will never reach the end of knowing God. It's going to take all of eternity and more for us to know this great God 
who is love and who has made himself known in Jesus Christ. This is the true God. We are in him who is true. And all of this is summed up with this final little strange verse at the very end of 1 John that kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What's going on here? He hasn't said anything about idols this whole time. Why, why is this the concluding phrase? Well, I think in the context of this whole letter, especially in the verse that precedes it, where he is again and again saying, this is the true God, the one who we know is true, right? This emphasis on what is true. Idols are simply false gods. And throughout this whole letter, he has been warning the people of false prophets, false messiahs, all kinds of false things. And what he is saying here in the end is, don't get so concerned and wrapped up by all of these false gods, false prophets, false things. Instead, cling to him who is true. Keep yourselves from idols and hold on to the true God who we know in Jesus Christ. This is what it is to live eternal life, to know God and to know his son, Jesus. May it be so. Amen.